I'm going to read from Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. It says, There were some present at that very time who told him, him being Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told him this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it, and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you have your Bible, please open to Luke 13, the verses that I read there. I know it felt like we spent three months in Luke 12, so we're finally out. But if you'll remember last Sunday, um, part of the text that we were looking at at the end of Luke was about interpreting the times when Jesus gives this challenge to the crowd and he actually accuses them of being hypocrites. He says, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but you do not know how to interpret the present time. Well, it seems like as, we, as Jesus, Jesus finishes his discourse in verse 59, and then we start into chapter 13, there are some people who are there at that moment, and they bring up a situation that has happened. And of course, there are two kind of national tragedies that Jesus addresses here. These would have been things on the front page of the paper. And one of them, the people bring up about these Galileans. The text says, whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices, meaning Pilate had them killed in the temple while they were offering their sacrifices. Pilate would would go off the handle. Sometimes it was random, sometimes it was planned, but he would do this often and he would simply send his soldiers straight into the temple and he would have people killed just to show his power and to show who he was and how much strength he had. And again, he was trying to keep the Judeans under his thumb. And so someone, some in the crowd, brought up this case to Jesus as he is teaching them on all the things that we've been talking about over the past several weeks. And so the first issue that gets brought up is about Pilate having these Galileans killed in the temple. So Jesus, in verse 2, he begins to talk about this and use this as a strategic example for something a little different. In verse 2, after this issue was brought up, it says, and he answered them, do you think, now if Jesus is saying, do you think, guess what they're thinking? What he's about to say. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? 
Now, again, Jesus is bringing this up because he knows what they're thinking. We see this in other places in Scripture, and he doesn't just bring things up in a vacuum. He doesn't bring things up at random. So he knows exactly what they're thinking. This was a big conversation in their day that if something happened to you, well, that happened to you because you had sin in your life, right? And so he raises the question, do you think this was because they were worse sinners because they suffered in this way? Now, the suffering that they endured, just so we're clear about that, was that these people experienced a willful act of violence from other human beings. That's the category of what they suffered, a willful act of violence from other human beings. Now, that act of violence could have been random, meaning Pilate could have just on impulse sent them into the temple, or it could have been planned. It may have been a special day. We don't get all the details. He may have known that there were a group of Galileans who were coming down to offer sacrifices in the temple, and then he sent in the soldiers. We actually don't know the details, but what we do know is that these people on this day experienced a willful act of violence from another person. Another person gave the order. And again, the question is, are they worse sinners in some way? In verse 3, Jesus answers the question, and he simply says no. But Jesus takes the opportunity to point towards something else. Jesus says, no, I tell you in verse 3, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And there we say, what exactly is he talking about? What does perish mean? Well, Jesus goes on in verse 4, and he brings up another issue. He says, or those 18 on whom the, uh, the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. So again, another national tragedy would have been on the front page of the paper. The Tower of Siloam fell, 18 people died. Now, some people point out that the Tower of Siloam was by the Pool of Siloam, and they think that's where the tower was, and it fell there. If you're standing on Temple Mount, you're looking across the Kidron Valley, which is not as big as you think it is, you would see a village out there, and some people would point that that was the village of Siloam. Well, whether it was right outside the gates of Jerusalem or whether it was inside Jerusalem, uh, we do not, again, have all the details. What we do know is that there was a Tower of Siloam, and it fell, 18 people died. Whereas in the first category, the people who experienced uh, death, they experienced it as it was a willful act of another human being. In this case, this is a natural disaster. This is a tragedy. It's an accident. A tower fell and 18 people died. So Jesus raises the question again. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? And then his answer is the same. He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So here there are these two events that everyone that Jesus is talking to would have known about. They would have known at least some of the details about. And Jesus uses this moment to call them once again to repentance and then to point them toward this word perishing. And the question is, what does that mean? I think what Jesus is pointing the people to in this idea of if you don't repent, you will perish, is he is pointing them to a greater death a greater, a death that is greater than physical death. I think what he is referring to is what the Bible calls the second death. The second death is the eternal death that will be experienced by those who do not repent and turn to God. And Scripture is clear about this, but there's only four references to this 
second death, and all of them are found in the book of Revelation. So if you will, turn over to Revelation chapter 2, and we'll see the first one. As you turn to Revelation chapter 2, please leave your charts packed away. I'm glad one person got that. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus is talking to the seven churches, and in chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, he's talking to the church in Smyrna. And if you pick it up in verse 10, halfway through the verse, he says, be faithful unto death. Now, earlier in verse 9, he reveals that they are experiencing tribulation, they are experiencing poverty because people are refusing to do business with Christians. There are a lot going on here. We don't have time to get into all that. But he tells them, he calls them, Jesus does, to be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And so here we see this idea of the second death mentioned for the first time. But there's no explanation of the second death. It just says those who conquer, those who are faithful unto death, those are the ones who are going to conquer, and you will not be hurt by the second death. Well, the second time that the phrase, the second death, comes up is in Revelation chapter 20. If you'll turn over to Revelation chapter 20. Now, Revelation chapter 20 is one of the most important chapters in the Bible, and at some point we will go through that in its entirety. But pick it up in verse 4, and a part of the vision that John sees, he says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And, or also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the Word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years ended. This is the first resurrection. So the first resurrection is when you die in this life, you die, you go to reign with Christ. And again, I know that raises a whole lot of questions for you. That's for another time. But verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first re resurrection. Over such, the second death, there it's mentioned again, has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. The third mention that we see is down in chapter 20 again. Pick it up in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books, plural, were opened. Then another book, singular, was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, plural, according to what they had done. Verse 13, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades, what we call in the New Testament hell and what the Old Testament calls Sheol, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, comma, the lake of fire. 
And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, book singular, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so what is being communicated here, it's pretty clear. One day we will stand before God. There are books, plural, that will be open. And those names who are written in the books, plural, will be judged by what they have done. Then there is the book of life. And we know who the one is that gives us life, that is Christ himself. Those names written in the book of life, they're not judged by what they've done. They've been judged by what Christ has done. They are in him. And those who, whose names are written in the book of life, they do not experience the second death, which is the lake of fire. It says it very clearly there. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And then the fourth mention is in chapter 21. Verse 7 says, the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. That's covenant relationship. But as for the cowardly, the, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexual immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, all the liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Again, referring to the same thing he just referred to in chapter 20. When Jesus tells the people on this day, he's using this natural event where tragedy happened, where death happened. He says, yes, that did happen. But unless you repent, you will likewise perish. He is pointing toward ultimate perishing. He's pointing toward the second death. And what he's saying is that human hate and natural disasters, yes, they happen. And all of us are subject to those things happening in our life, even though we pray that God would keep us from that. But human hate and natural disasters happen to all people. And it's not because someone was a worse sinner in some way, Jesus is saying. It's because sin exists in the world. In one sense, when something like a tragedy happens, in one sense, it's actually not a mystery. Because people choose to not love other people, right? They you either love or you not love. And people choose to not love other people. And, and, and when people choose to not love other people, that's how murder happens. That's how the horrible things that human beings do to other human beings, that's how it happens. It's because sin is in the world. And even when natural disasters happen, it happens because the natural order is also broken because of sin. I mean, there, you do know there were no hurricanes in the garden. There were no tornadoes in the garden. Let me put it this way. There were no towers falling in the garden, right? Our roads crack because sin exists in the world. There'll be a reality one day in heaven where roads don't crack. Are you with me? Everything that's broken around us, everything falls and crumbles. It all does. Buildings, everything, our bodies, everything crumbles because sin came into the world. And so in one sense, when accidents happen, when tragedies happen, in one sense, it's not a mystery. People choose to not love people and we live in a fallen world where accidents actually happen. Even to good people. Because the sun rises on the righteous and the unrighteous. But even though this is the case, the point Jesus is making is that you may not be able to control human hate. You may not be able to control the natural elements, but you can control whether or not you experience the second death. You can control that. And that's the point he's making to them in this moment. 
I've heard this example several times, and I think it's brilliant, and that is that we live one life in three phases. The first phase of our life is the nine months that we are in the womb. And the nine months that we are in the womb is preparing us for life outside the womb. And then when we are born, everything about our reality changes. All of our senses are absolutely assaulted. That's why babies come out crying, right? I mean, all of a sudden, what you see, what you taste, what you hear, everything changes about your reality, and we are in the world. And then we live this life for however many decades that God would give us on this planet. But this life is preparing us for the next life. Because the next life is forever. It is eternal. It's a lot longer than the few decades that we get to live here. And so we live this one life in three phases. And just as the womb prepares us to live in this life, this life prepares us for eternity. And all of this is because of God's covenant. God's intent and God's design is that through a covenant relationship, you come into being. And then when you come into being and you're born on this planet, then your job is to live in covenant relationship with God. And the inheritance of that covenant relationship then is eternity. And even though we live one life in three phases, there are two deaths that we could experience. One is natural death in this life and the other is eternal death. And Jesus is calling them here in this moment to keep in the forefront of their mind that yes, we live in a fallen world. Yes, tragedy happens. Yes, tyrants like Pilate make choices. And yes, people die. But there is a greater death that we need to prepare for because this life is preparing us for that moment and that reality. Then Jesus launches into a parable. It seems disconnected. I don't think it is in verse 6. As he's standing there having this conversation, verse 6 says, and then he told him a parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. How interesting. Think about the sentence. A man had a, what? Fig tree planted in his vineyard. What gets planted in vineyards? Grapes, vines, that's right. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. Interesting. Now, in the first century, it's true that the space in which the vineyard was cultivated, that it was fertile as well for a fig tree. And if there were gaps, then people would put, from time to time, a fig tree in their vineyard. However, it's out of place. It's a foreign object. Let's put it that way. Jesus goes on to talk about this conversation between the vine dresser and some mysterious person. I believe the vine dresser is, as you interpret the other parables about that, and in particular John 15, is God, the Father, and I believe that he is having a conversation with the Son. When Jesus brings up this idea of the fig tree uh, being planted in the vineyard. When he's talking about the vineyard, those who were of the people of Israel would immediately go back to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, starting in verse 1, says, let me sing for my beloved. Let my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared out the stones. He planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in its midst and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. 
What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste and it shall, be pruned, uh, shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So when Jesus is teaching and he starts talking about a vineyard, those, especially with a Jewish background, their mind immediately goes to Isaiah chapter 5. They understand the Lord's vineyard because they are the Lord's vineyard. So Jesus shows up and he says, someone planted a fig tree in the vineyard. And all of a sudden they go, fig tree? It says he came seeking fruit and he found none, verse 7, and he said to the vine dresser, God, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on the fig tree and I found none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on it manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, cut, you can cut it down. He came looking for how many years? How many years did Jesus do ministry on the earth? Three and a half. It was in the fourth year that he was crucified. So he says, hey, come next year. Probably gives you a timeline about where Jesus is in his ministry to some degree. So for three years, Jesus does ministry on the earth. It's as if he says to the Father, hey, if there's no fruit next year, yes, come cut it down. But it's as if Jesus is interceding for the vineyard and the fig tree. Now, there's two possible interpretations to this, and I think both are actually correct. First is that Jesus is once again calling the people of Israel, the vineyard, to repent. Or second, he's actually calling the Jews and the Gentiles who are reading Luke's gospel, because it's written to a Gentile audience, to repent. Because you see, the fruit that he's looking for on the fig tree, it's a parable. The fruit that he's looking for on the fig tree is the fruit of repentance. You say, Chris, how do you know? Because of verse 3 and verse 5, that's exactly what he was just talking about. Jesus is not just jumping around at random here, like just changing. It's not, he's actually not even talking about the fruit of the Spirit. He's talking about the fruit of repentance. That's why he told the people he's having this conversation with, no, they're not worse sinners, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He says in verse 3 and verse 5, then he gives them this parable. So the fruit that he's talking about is repentance. Now, I do think, again, two interpretations. Number one, he is calling on the house of Israel, the vineyard itself, to repent. And through that, likewise, all of us. But he's also, I think, illustrating that yes, Israel is the vineyard, but a foreign object has been planted in the vineyard. The language of Romans in Romans 9 through 11 is that the Gentiles were grafted in. Again, writing to a Gentile audience, I think he's pointing out, Luke the writer is pointing out that Jesus here is, yes, the vineyard is Israel, but the fig tree are the Gentiles. And he's calling both to repent. Both to bear the fruit of repentance. 
whether you're a part of the original vineyard or whether you've been planted in the vineyard, the fruit of every person who wants to follow Christ has to be the fruit of repentance. It has to be. As Jared said earlier, a lot of times when we talk about repentance, we talk about it because it's been talked about or preached about in particular ways. We talk about it as this negative thing. It's not this negative thing. Repentance is actually one of the greatest gifts to the world from God. It is an invitation. It's where we get to repent, not I have to repent. I get to come to God, a God who will hear me and a God who will hear as I confess my sins to Him and not just hold it against me. No, he'll not only forgive my sins, but he'll set me free from those sins. And he'll set me free from the guilt and shame that go along with those sins. We all know that all people have sinned. All people have turned away from God. Isaiah 53 verse 6 tells us that. It says, all, uh, we are all like sheep who have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But then it goes on. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. And again, the greatest gift that we have is the gift of repentance. And repentance happens both individually and corporately. It happens individually. We saw it on the day of Pentecost when Peter stands up and he's preaching to the crowd. Acts 2.38, repent, be baptized, everyone know you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We also see corporate repentance throughout Scripture as well. We see examples like Jeremiah 18, Ezra 10, and others. This idea of corporate repentance, though, a lot of times people think it's just something that happens in the Old Testament. It is not. All you have to do is flip back over to the book of Revelations, and you see that God calls the church in Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, to repent. Revelation 2, 4 and 5. But this I have against you, that you have abandoned your first love. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Or Pergamum, Revelation 2, 16. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come and war against you. Thyatira, Revelation 2, 20 through 22. He says the same thing. Or Sardis, Revelation 3, 3. And of course, Laodicea, the call is implied, even though it's not explicit. So repentance is something that happens on a personal level, yes. It's something that also happens on a corporate level as well. And there are times in which God is working in our life through the power and grace of conviction and calls us to this place of repentance, which is metanoia, the Greek word, which is to turn away from the sin. And he calls that, and there's times he calls all of us as a body to that, as a whole local church, if you will. David teaches us how to repent. We all know the famous Psalm 51, but if you just look at the first three verses, you get a good starting point when it comes to repentance, and I don't want to assume that we all know how to do it. Psalm 51 verse 1 says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And there, David is acknowledging his sorrow, he's acknowledging his guilt, and he actually has sorrow and guilt for his sin. And he's calling out to God who loves us and is abundant in his mercy to actually intervene because David has sinned. And then we see in verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He's asking for God to do the deep inner cleansing in his soul. This is repentance because I want to turn away from it. But again, not just turn away from it and still be there. God, would you deal with this in some way? And then in verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Because true repentance has to come with a serious acknowledgement of actual sin. 
A lot of times in the church world, when we think of sin, we talk of sin in general terms. And Lord, if I've sinned in any way, would you forgive me? Listen, when you sin, you know it, right? Most of the time. And then if you sin and you don't know it, then over time it becomes revealed to you. Especially in Christian fellowship with other people who love you and will call you out in Jesus' name and lovingly, right? But when you become aware, all of a sudden now that sin is before us. And then we are called to once again come and lay it at His feet. This 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All the things that David is asking for in this moment when our sin confronts us. And here in this text, that's what Jesus is doing. He's confronting on a huge scale both all the people of Israel, the vineyard, and the Gentiles, the fig tree. And he's calling them to this place that they would repent. And that's one of the reasons why when we prepare to take Holy Communion, I hope you receive communion elements whenever you came in. It's one of the reasons why we like to take a moment and to ask God to forgive us. And Paul actually calls the church to do that in 1 Corinthians 11. And we ask God to forgive us and to cleanse us so that we may take of the Lord's Supper in a worthily manner. And so if you have your elements, would you please pull those out? And let us begin with a, a word of confession. Father, we come to you in this moment. And we are fully aware that all of our sin, past, present, and future has been dealt with in Christ. And we are also fully aware that the flesh is alive and active in us. And that Satan loves to bring up the old man, the old woman, so that we may once again put on bondage. And Lord, sometimes we take the bait. But Lord, we thank you that when we come to this moment, especially as we stare at simple elements that mean so much to us, that when we come to this moment and we say, Father, forgive me for I have sinned, that you hear that prayer and you answer that prayer instantaneously, regardless if our emotions feel it or not. And so, Lord, in this moment, as we take just a moment to personally repent, we lay our sins before you, those things that we have accumulated since the last time. And Lord, we ask that you would forgive us and cleanse us from our unrighteousness. Take a moment to pray. Father, I thank you for the gift of confession and repentance. It was John who told us that if we claim to be without sin, we are a liar. But Lord, you are so faithful and just. You forgive, you cleanse from all unrighteousness. And so Lord, as we prepare our heart to receive your grace once again, 
we do so as repentant and forgiven people. And for that we say thank you. Lord, we thank you that Jesus chose the path to the cross for us. We thank you that his body was broken for us. And when he met with his disciples, he gave them bread. He said, I want you to remember me. I want you to take simple bread and I want you to eat it in remembrance of me because it's my body that is broken for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. So take and eat the body of Christ. And at the same time, he gave them a cup full of wine. And he said, I not only give my body, but I shed my blood, the perfect DNA of heaven, the perfect lamb, the perfect sacrifice so that you can be forgiven and set free once and for all. And he gave that cup to his disciples and he said, take and drink. This is my blood poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do it in remembrance of me. May take the cup. So Father, we thank you that through these simple elements we receive your grace. May we live in it in this moment and each moment you would give us from this moment on. Lord, we love you. We can't say it enough. We love you. We really do. And we thank you for loving us. In Jesus' good and powerful name, amen. Well, church, would you stand and respond with us?
purified my heart and cleanse me from within deep within the refiner's fire my heart's one desire and it's to grateful for the word that Pastor Chris shared, and I hope that you've heard from the Lord tonight. Perhaps He's calling you to come back to Him. There's grace in His eyes. His arms are open wide. You can come at the close of the service down to the altar. One of us would be happy to pray with and for you. There's also connection cards in the back of the chairs in front of you. You can fill one of those out. You can bring them back to the back, and there's a collection box that can receive those. We'd also love to gather with you at the end of the service. There's refreshments out at the connection point, so you can go and grab a cookie and um, gather with your brothers and sisters in Christ. But let us pray before we go with our benediction. Gracious God, thank you for making yourself ever more real to us tonight. God, thank you for upholding your promise that you inhabit the praises of your people God, thank you for the beauty and the grace that is found in your word and that you do welcome us with open arms. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance. So, Father, would we come? Would we turn that holy roll and look at you and come back to you, our Father? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Now, may God bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you. May he lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Amen.